0: But one of the questions that I'm asked as a pastor the most is, and it's a perfect lead into the message today, is how can I know if I'm really a believer in Jesus or not? How can I know if I'm really saved or not? I, I would say I probably hear this question at least once a month uh, from our church people saying, you know, am I really saved or aren't I? Uh, and kind of wanting me to give them give you this answer. You are saved. Well, no, that's not what I'm going to tell you, and I can't do that, and I'm not supposed to do that, as we will see in our passage today, but it is something that we all want to know, right? We want to know if we're really believers or not, whether we're really saved, whether we're going to heaven or not. Our world has answered this question incorrectly numerous times. The answer is not if you had a moment in time when you prayed a prayer or walked an aisle, then you're saved. That's not the answer. The answer is not, if you go to church, you are saved. That's not the answer either. The answer is not, if you have been raised as a Christian in a Christian environment, then you're saved. That doesn't do it either. The answer is not, whether you have been baptized or not. You can be baptized and lost as last year's Easter egg. So if the world answers the question incorrectly, does this mean we shouldn't try to answer the question? No, in fact, we should. God wants every one of His children to have assurance of a right relationship with Him. God wants us to have assurance. Isn't that good news? He wants us to know that we are forgiven. He wants us to know that we are right with Him. The fact is that if we don't understand that and we don't have understanding of His love for us, we will not obey Him. Our motives will be wrong. If we don't know that we are right with God, we will obey for the purpose of earning favor with God. Obedience from a heart that knows we're right with Him actually produces is genuine obedience, rather. So yes, God wants us to know if we're saved. In fact, God wrote an entire book in the Bible... To give us this assurance. That's what 1 John's all about. The book of 1 John is what we're going to cover today, or we're actually going to cover a few of the verses. But we'll be in this book to give us some insurance. And I think it's something that we all need to have. And I would argue that maybe this would be a good New Year's resolution for us all. I want to have assurance for 2015. I want some assurance of my right standing with God. I want to know that I'm right with God. How about y'all? That's a good thing to pursue and understand, right? So that's what we're going for today, and we're going to start with that today. In today's passage, we get a glimpse of God's litmus test of a genuine believer. The Word of God gives us a clear explanation of the difference between believers and unbelievers. For the believer in here, this passage will be a call to continue in your reliance upon Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. It will also encourage us that we are right with Him. For the unbeliever in here, this will be a call to truly repent and believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And for those who are unsure of your standing with God, this will be a clarification of your heart and a call to rely upon Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And you too should find your way to the glorious hope of the gospel. Either way my prayer is, is that we will all end up in total reliance upon and fellowship with Jesus after studying this passage. Let's get a background of this letter briefly. The author was the Apostle John. we We have the gentle but firm Apostle John writing this in the authoritative Word of God. One of the sons of thunder is speaking here, who also was the apostle who laid his head on the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper. The setting was the church was under attack by a heresy that denied the humanity of Jesus. The heresy also claimed that sin was okay because it only took place in the flesh. They allowed for sin with no concern. They said, in fact, so-called converted, uh, converted spirit of man was sinless So, they were really not sinning when their flesh was participating in sin. So, in effect, they said they could use their bodies to sin because their converted spirit was not participating in the sin. They taught a strong dichotomy between the spiritual and the physical spiritual is good, but flesh is bad. The two are distinct. So a person could pridefully say a statement like this, I don't sin anymore, I'm perfect. What they would be talking about is their spirit, their quote-unquote converted spirit. This was very deceptive heresy. And it has been retooled and retold countless times since G- John wrote this book. Beloved, this shows up in various shades today. Perfectionism is a common is common among the cults. Yet there is also a form of it in mainline denominations too. The group that says it is just affirming facts that saves a person. They say a person can live how they want as long as they had a spiritual experience at one point in their life. As long as you have your ticket to heaven, you're okay. But this is a line of thinking from the enemy. And it steals real assurance from the believers. Listen closely. See... When a believer hears this, they justify their sin. But real believers in sin lose the Spirit's produced assurance in our life. This is so important. God has intentionally established warning signs for believers to help them to abide in Christ. He established the misery of conviction of sin to cause us to return to Jesus. But if somebody tells you, "Hey, don't ignore that. Don't worry about it. You're saved. You're okay. No big deal," what you do is you you don't abide in Christ. You make a distinction between justification and sanctification so dramatic. You say, "Well, I'm okay. I'm okay," and because that's all it really is about is what they would say. But those are supposed to be warning signs. When you're in sin, you should feel miserably. You should be. I mean, you should be just. I feel horrible. And if you don't, you should be afraid. You should be very concerned. He established this misery to cause us to return to Jesus. And when we repent and confess, we turn back to Christ again. And we walk with Him in the light as we will see. Thus assurance is established and joy returns. And we abide in Christ and enjoy Him. But if we make a strong dichotomy between justification, getting right with God, and sanctification, we make that break. Well, what we're doing is the same thing the heresy did. Beloved, we can't do that. We can't fall into that trap. And this book is written so that we don't do that. Assurance comes by abiding in Christ and enjoying Him. This book was written to destroy that heresy and give assurance to the believers, as we will see. The main themes of the letter emphasize the great contrast between genuine believers in the world, light and darkness, love and hate, sin and righteousness. The purpose, like I said, was this. It was written to give assurance to the believers concerning their life in Christ. 1 John 5.13 gives you the purpose. It says, these things I have written to you who believe already, who believe or who are believing in the name of the Son of God. Why? so that you may know that you have eternal life. Boy, that's a purpose, right? It gives you the purpose for the letter. I don't know about you. I want to know that I have eternal life. Well, then we need to study this book. We all need to study it. Because after all, the more we know that we have eternal life, the more we will enjoy Him and enjoy the relationship that we have with Him. I'm excited for the ladies of our church as... As Mark mentioned at the beginning, the ladies are starting a uh, book study on 1 John, and it starts in January, and here's your book, ladies, with the master before the mirror of God's word, Susan Heck, but it's basically, she is like the MacArthur, ladies MacArthur, John MacArthur, she is amazing, I read the first two chapters, it's excellent, I, I strongly advise all of you ladies to do it, uh, it's it's a, basically a study on 1 John, and I'm convinced it's going to impact you greatly, all of you. It's going to be very fruitful. Uh, it is Christianity 101, First 1 John is. This is how a believer looks living out their faith in the world. It produces assurance in every believer and as they live and walk with God. You know, we believe it is so important for the ladies of grace that we're going to tweak the, the institute to help facilitate this for you ladies. Uh, We're not going to meet on the Institute on the third Saturdays. We've changed that. And, in fact, we want the men to stay home uh, with their children and take care of the children so the ladies can get away. And, in fact, we want the ladies to have it so nice that all the single guys are going to volunteer to come over and set up the tables for them beforehand and get this place looking nice for them so they don't have to kill themselves putting out tables. Right? Right? We will really want to help our women. You know, it can be a very lonely place for some of these ladies. It can be a very lonely place at home. Guys, I think this is our opportunity to serve them, and I think they will be encouraged greatly by it. So I, my goal is and my hope is, is that the whole church will be filled up on those Saturdays, the third Saturdays, as you all go through this, because I'm, I'm convinced that this book is a very encouraging book. I would argue that 1 John was the most impactful book on my practical walk with Christ than any other book in the Bible. 1 John was huge for me. So I'm excited for the ladies. The book starts in 1 John. Today we're going to get a little bit of a highlight of this. In 1 John 1 to 4 is the introduction and the prologue. The mission and uh, object of John's proclamation of the person and work of Jesus is found in the first three verses and then... The purpose is explained. It says, so that the believer could have an ongoing fellowship with other believers and ultimately with God. So this is it's all about participating with God. And you're going to see that this message is what it's all about, and the message of Jesus Christ and who he is. So in the introduction, Paul retells the foundation of all that we know and trust. What is it? It's the message of Jesus Christ and his work, right? It's him. Today we're going to look further at this gospel foundation, and then we will begin to see where our assurance as genuine believers are found. So our passage starts with a foundation of a genuine relationship with God in verse 5, and then the tests of a genuine relationship with God in verses 6 through 10. So let's start with that first section, the foundation of a genuine relationship with God. Notice in 1 John 1, 1.5 it says, This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. We see here the basis of a genuine relationship with God is the content of the message. The special revelation of God is the foundation of all that we do and think as believers. What we know about God through His message and who He is, is the foundation of everything, right? It's what we understand about God that causes us to live for Him. And that's what John's saying in 1 John 1, five. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. All the content of the message proclaimed in the foundation is the, is the foundation for our genuine relationship with God. Note some things about this message. First, the message is an ongoing existence. It says, this is the message. It stands as truth. It is who God is, and the truth stands. This message of who God is, is what is the thing, that's the basis for all that we do and all that we think. The message, notice, is an exclusive message. It says, This is the message. It is the only message that really matters. The way to God is through this message and it is exclusive. There is no other way to be saved. There is no other way to be sanctified. There is no other way to have assurance of a right relationship with God than the message of God found in the Word of God. Facts. The message had an ongoing impact. On the hearer. Notice, we have heard, is what John says. John points to this transforming nature of the message of the gospel with this phrase done, in effect, and continues on till today. It stands true and it has a lasting effect. We have heard it, and our lives are transformed by this message. It is this truth. The message was a revelation from the Son of God it says we have heard from him the son revealed himself revealed god to the apostle and revealed his glory as first 1 john 114 or as john 1 14 to 18 states and then it says the message is also being continuously proclaimed and we are announcing to you listen this message is and will always be the subject shared by anyone That is a child of God. And by everyone. His children will always proclaim this message of Christ. This is the best news. This is the only news. And this is the relevant news for today. This is what we need. We need the message. The message of God. Who He is and what He's done. It's always the same. And then the message is summarized by the last half of the verse. It says, God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. That's a summary of the gospel. That's a summary of who God is. God is light. Light is one of John's pregnant terms that he uses. Light has both a moral and a revelatory aspect to it. The metaphor of light points to purity and holiness. But it also points to exposing and revealing the truth. Here John appears to emphasize the moral purity... And righteousness of God. God is a revelation of the righteousness of the world. He is God. And God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. God is pure. God is holy. God is light. And God is described as completely void of any sin, evil, or wickedness. There is no wickedness in God at all, he is perfect and holy. This brings to mind one of, when, one of Jesus' self-revelations of himself. Anybody that argues that Jesus is not God has just totally, totally doesn't get it. Does not get the gospel at all. Because the fact of the matter is, is did Jesus ever say, I am God? Countless times. Countless times. Did he say, I am God? That little phrase? No. But did he say it? In all... So many times. One of the cases is this. John 8, 12. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Boy, if he's not God, that is the most blasphemous statement in all the world. He is God. I am the light of the world. John says in First John, God is light. And he says, I am the light of the world. That's obvious, isn't it? With this, this statement, he says, in effect, I'm God. I'm the revelation of God to the world. I am the revelation of purity, holiness, and all righteousness. The one who follows Jesus will know God and will ha- not be clueless and in bondage to sin. That's what he's saying. The follower ha- will have the light that produces eternal life. It is a revelation of God that brings life to people. And it's a revelation of Jesus Christ that produces life in us. Correct? It's knowing that God is light. When we know Him, we love Him. And when we love Him, we follow Him. And when we follow Him, we obey Him. Correct? He's light. As we've said countless times from this pulpit... As the Bible repeats itself over and over and over, it is the message of who God is and what God has done that is the foundation for all that we do. It's our understanding of who God is and what He has done and what He is doing is what produces obedience in us. We then live for Him. Now, after establishing this foundation for a genuine relationship with God, notice John moves to the tests that give assurance. ...of a genuine relationship with God. Look at these. Again, it's the message of who God is and what God has done... ...that is the foundation of all that we do. The tests of a genuine relationship with God. The tests. John gives five here in verses 6 through 10. In these five verses. The tests are worded in the form of conditional statements. If-then statements. These are called, in the Greek, third-class conditional statements. This means John is being a very gentle with the way he says it, as if laying out these tests very kindly, gently. If you do this, then this. If you do this, then this. They would be very clear rebukes to the false teachers, but he rebukes them in a very kind and gentle way. You want a real smack, you read James. You want a nice hug, you read First John. 1 John is the gentle way of calling out false teachers and yet also encouraging the believer. There are three conditional statements that expose the false professors in verses 6, 8, and 10. And then there are two responses that lay the antidote for the wrong thinking mentioned in the previous verse. These reveal the true believers, how they think and how they act and what they do. This is us. Those are found in verses 7 and 9. Then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, John gives the solution to the final claim in verse 10. These are general tests that can be applied to both believers and unbelievers. For the believers, these are warnings of what we should avoid, they expose an unbiblical view of a relationship with God. These tests can also call us to reevaluate our own walk with the Lord. And to get us back on track. For the unbeliever, it should be a call to genuine repentance and faith. Again, remember, all of these tests are related to the foundational truth of who God is. In verse 5. He is light, which means he is holy and righteous and just and all wise. And God is all about holiness. God's all about holiness. This is what God's about. Now notice, let's begin with this first test. Let's look. First, profession without an appropriate demonstration is deception. Profession without an appropriate demonstration is deception. First John 1, 6 says, If we say that we have fellowship with God, with Him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Again, who we are, is ultimately revealed by what we do more than what we say. Get that? That is very important. Who we are is ultimately revealed by what we do more than what we say. Again, does that mean that what we do saves us? Not at all. But because we're saved, we will act different. That's the fact. We act different. And we don't just say one thing. We've all seen this and we all know this that we've all been exposed. And there have been exposures lately. How many of you have seen, you know, over your walk with Christ, people that you thought were Christians and said they were Christians and then abandoned the faith? You've asked this question in your mind what in the world? Are they still saved? Well, the answer is is just because somebody says something doesn't mean that they are really truth. Just because somebody says it doesn't mean anything if their life doesn't match it. And I do know this, that Satan is very deceptive, and he often hides it for a long period of time. He keeps people saying things and hides the outward, and they look good on the outside, but then as time goes along, they're exposed. Their hearts are exposed. This is a test. Profession without an appropriate demonstration is deception. Fact. Notice a common phrase in these 6, 8, and 10. If we say, that's what the false teachers were doing. They were talking a lot. This is a perfect description of most false teachers. They are all about proclaiming something. They are much more about talking than serving and sacrificing They always have something to say, but as we will see, what they say is often a bunch of garbage. All of these conditional statements are like giant flashlights from God that exposes the hearts of the congregation. How do you respond when you are confronted or exposed? I don't know about you guys, but I, I, I got to thinking as I was going through this, this could be very painful today as I preach this. I got to thinking about y'all. Man, this could be very painful to hear. And then I thought to myself, how are we going to respond to this? Are we going to take it as, man, he sure is preaching hard at me. Why is he doing this? And get angry? Well, if so, then that exposes your heart. Ultimately, when we are exposed with if-then statements, and we don't look like the right side of the equation, we should all go what? Woe is me, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. It should be the greatest news in all the world to be confronted by sin, shouldn't it? Just because we are confronted doesn't mean the person doesn't love us. It actually means they love us a lot, that they would tell us the hard truths, right? How do we respond when we're confronted or exposed? When your spouse says something to you, what do you do? I don't know about you guys, but I do have sometimes... Still, a tendency to justify my actions. We need to stop, don't we? We need to accept it and repent. Turn to Christ. Well, yeah, you do this, or yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I hear it all the time. Yeah, what about you? That's called justification. That's called deflecting. Put yourself in the person's shoes and understand what they're talking about, and then look at your heart and see that you need Christ. The way we're exposed is, when we're exposed rather, is a good thing because God is trying to show us that we need Christ again or more. How we respond to the light reveals a lot about our hearts, doesn't it? To help explain this first test, let's define a few of the terms in that first condition. It says, fellowship. A personal communion with God is what that means. If we say that we have fellowship, we have a personal communion with God, a mutual partnership with the only true God. If we say that we have a common understanding and interest and purpose and love with God, this is what the false teachers were saying. They were saying, if we say we have an ongoing mutual partnership with God, if we say we have an ongoing common interest, purpose, understanding of God, but notice... And yet, walk. Walk, this term, has the idea of a moral, ongoing life. Uh, this is what we do. It's what we think. It's what we desire. Our walk is our course of, is the course of one's life, both inward and outward. It's not just what you uh, look like on the out. It's what's going on inside your heart. So if we say, hey, I got partnership with God, and yet walk, what? In darkness, in darkness means in the realm of wickedness and evil and ignorance of the glory of God. Darkness is the realm of the world. In this context, darkness is associated with sinfulness. If we say this and we live in sin, you could—that's the way you could translate it. The idea behind it: what if we're this way? We're liars. If we say we have an ongoing common partnership with God and yet the course of our life, both inward and outward, is evil, wicked, and ignorant of the glory of God, we lie is what it says. Lie, this is a present tense tense verb. This isn't just one lie every year or two. This is an ongoing habitual lying nature of who we are. We are liars in effect. If our profession does not demonstrate itself by walking in the joy and peace of God, we are liars. In fact, if our lives resemble the realm of the world, then we are liars with respect to our profession. We are not who we say we are. Look, friends, there is just no ray around the fact that if a person is a genuine believer, they will be different from the world. If they are a believer... And they are walking as if they are in darkness. They will be absolutely miserable until they repent and make things right. Believers have been transferred to a different realm of existence. They are really changed. It's not just a change in environment. It is a real heart change. That new movie that's out based on the book of the life of Louis Zamperini is an example of this. I watched a special on him last night. Man, it was extremely encouraging. This guy's real. His life was hard. He drifted in a lifeboat for 47 days in the ocean after being shot down by a Japanese plane. It's it's, it's unbelievable. He was taken captive and then brutally treated by his Japanese captors for uh, months and months. This treatment in the prison camp was so bad that when, he got, when the war was over, uh, he had horrible nightmares every night for years. And what he would do is he would drink every day in order to get rid of this horrible thoughts in his mind. It would help him to go to sleep. But then he would get angry. He got so These nightmares were so bad, at one time he, he woke up and his hands were around his wife's throat, killing the guy that trying to kill her. Because, the guy, because of the guy that had treated him so horribly in the prison camp. But then Zamperini uh, repented of his sin and embraced the Lord Jesus. He heard the gospel. And I watched the video of the interview with him last night. Now, he's already gone to be with the Lord uh, about a year ago. But in the interview, he said from that point on of his conversion, he stopped drinking, he reconciled with his wife that had filed for divorce, and he forgave his captors. That is called difference, isn't it? That's called change. Change happens. In fact, he went on to share the gospel with some of the guys that had treated him bad. He went to Japan, flew to Japan and gave the gospel. The ones that he had hated so much. doesn't make sense. Other than the gospel message, it changes us. We really live different. Again, this is the effect of the message, right? It changes us. It's not the preacher, beloved. It's not even the power of the convert. It's not the convert himself. It's the power of the message of Jesus Christ. It changes lives. When you really get who Jesus is, you're different. Right? Right? should this even have to be debated? But yet it is, and our culture hates it. Our interests, our desires, our understandings, our thoughts, our actions will be contrasted with the wicked world when the message changes our heart. And if our life is not different than our profession, to be in mutual partnership with God is a lie. Hebert states it this way. Whenever there's a clear conflict between an individual's talk and his walk, it's always his walk, not his talk, that reveals who he is, what he really is. That's, you need to write that down. That is truth right there. Just because you say something, if you're say, what you say doesn't match up with how you live, it's what you, how you live reveals whether or not what you were saying is true or not. It's a fact. A genuine believer looks and lives the part, not just talks the part. Correct? And John goes on one step further and states, If a person talks about fellowship with God, not only are they lying and and yet walking in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We don't do the truth. This is so typical, isn't it? This is an ongoing failure to do God's truth. Truth is defined as God's revelation of himself and his saving plan in Christ. So the false professor is continuously not doing what God reveals a person who is his own is called to do. Put simple, God's truth is part of our daily lives. It is what we believe and it is what we do if we are genuine believers. If you see that your life is all about worldly things and worldly desires and worldly lusts, then there should be great concern in your heart. (laughs) You should ask the question, am I really God's own child? If you say, well, I'm not always this way, but way too often I am. Some of us are all in the room going, amen, that's me. I'm not always this way, but I'm all too often this way. Then you better end up on your knees now. You then to go to Christ now. And submit your desires to Him and repent. Trust Christ again. Renew your commitment to Him. You better beg God to change your desires, right? And give you desires that will love and want to serve Him. And know His word more. Again, what we profess about ourselves does not matter if we demonstrate the opposite. In fact... If this is our life and we are lying and we are not doing the truth, guess what? One day he's going to expose us. Often I pray that that exposure happens before people die. How about you? Until it affects us, right? Until it's a loved one. So I want to take this test and ask you some practical questions here. Listen, does our profession line up with our life? Are we a Christ-honoring person when we are away from here, the church? Let me ask you a question. Do the people that you're around here know the way you act at home? In other words, do you act the same here as you act there? Do we have the same desires and interests and purposes of understanding God more? Do we love God's word? Do we long to see people saved? Do we strive to obey God? Now, as we know, this is not perfection, but it is the direction of a genuine believer's heart. There is bound to be some conflict in every one of you in the room. We all have areas of struggle, correct? But the key term here is struggle. We hate that we are also fleshly minded, we hate it. And we long to change. And we will do whatever it takes to change. Correct? Why? Because God saved us. God redeemed us. God gave us a new life in Christ. So we want to. And by God's grace, He's working on us to change this about us. How many of you want whatever it takes to get rid of sin in your life? That's the struggle. And that's why you keep coming back and hear... Pastor Mike beat you up every week. I want to know it better. I want to know Christ more so I can kill this sin. How about you? Can you imagine if we made a year? Here's our New Year's resolution. I'm going to kill sin in 2015 like I've never killed sin before. There's a resolution, isn't it? I'm going to work at mortifying sin better than any year I've ever done it. I want to do that. How about you guys? Whether it is a believer or an unbeliever, the answer is always the same, though. When confronted with our sin, it is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We have to cry out to God and seek forgiveness in Him. And as we turn back to Him every time, we find that He is a forgiving and loving God that transforms hearts. What a good God He is, right? So the next test is found in verse 7. It's the first positive one. It says, profession with appropriate demonstration results in progressive sanctification. Big words. Profession with appropriate demonstration results in progressive sanctification. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' His Son cleanses us from all sin. Let's walk through the contrast to the previous false professors. Who said they were believers but didn't demonstrate this belief? This one shows that the pattern of life of a believer, for the believer, that's different from the world. Notice, put simply, believers humbly walk in Christ, being transformed by God's grace. The genuine believer has a couple of life, a course of life that includes living in the realm of God's transferable character traits. Let me say that again. That's a big sentence. Woo! That's what you call a book sentence instead of a sermon sentence, guys. The genuine believer has a course of life that includes living in the realm of God's transferable character traits. In other words, we live a life that shows God's communicable attributes in our life. He shows himself off in us. Specifically, the believer is living in the realm of God's holiness, His righteousness, His justice, His peace, His wisdom. And as He Himself is in the realm of holiness and wisdom and righteousness, He then shows Himself off in our lives. That's what Christians do. We walk in His light. We walk in the revelation of Him. The genuine believer walks in the revelation of God. And if we walk in the revelation of God, then there are some obvious effects. Walking in the revelation of God, knowing God and enjoying Him and being satisfied with Him, then shows itself off. And what happens? Fellowship. We have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship. Walking in the revelation of God is knowing and enjoying the purity and beauty of our Savior. Listen, friends, this is... This positive test is not a burden. These are freedoms. These are liberties. These are enjoying things. When we walk in the light, it's not something, oh, I got to walk in the light today. (laughs) Oh, man, another day of walking in the light. It's the opposite. I get to walk in the light today in sin and darkness. Praise God. I get to enjoy God. Do you think your attitude will be a little bit different? It's almost like you walk up to people that are walking in the light and you go, Hey, we're in the same team. We think the same. We love each other. We go to basketball games together. Walking." in the light and honoring our king is what we want to do, right? Our talk is God honoring. We enjoy fellowship with one another. This is the effect of walking in holiness and God's holiness and righteousness and wisdom. We have fellowship with one another. The genuine believer is not not only has a right relationship with God, but they have a mutual partnership with other believers. Now listen, Listen to me. When you sin, when you sin, what does Satan immediately hit even the believers with? Hide. Hide. Don't talk to people. Get as far away from other people as you possibly can. Don't get near light. He doesn't say it that way, but that's exactly what happens. When, in fact, when you sin, the best thing you can do is just go announce it. Go to your closest friend and immediately tell him what you did. Say, I blew it. Just bring it out there. Go, ah! Run to Christ because that's ultimately what you have to do. Bring it to him immediately. I don't know about you, but you know what I want to do when I repent? When I repent of a sin and I'm confronted by a sin, you know what I want to do? I want to spend time with the believers immediately. When I truly repent, I want to be around believers. You know why? Because you guys know it. You go through the same garbage I do. I know my wife sees it coming. Oh, he just repented. He's here to give me a hug. Oh, baby, let me tell you, I'm just such a wretched sinner, but Christ loves me and He died for me. Man, I can't believe He loves me. There's fellowship in that, isn't there? I want to be around the believers. Walking in the revelation of God brings partnership with other believers. Same purpose. Just want to hang out with you guys. Simply put, if the general direction of our life is God's ways and word, then we're going to have a mutual ad, uh, adoration and common bond with other like-minded believers. Listen closely. Fellowship with believers is a guarantee if we are all pursuing holiness together. Did you hear me? You know, a lot of people say we, churches have the best fellowship. Some churches have the best fellowship. The best fellowship is found with people that are walking in holiness. That's the best fellowship. People that are broken and contrite and repentant believers. That's the best fellowship. Because those are the people that you don't feel like you're going to be judged when you walk into the room. And those are the people that when you confess your sin, you don't don't feel like, "Uh uh-oh, here comes a slap. Oh, and there comes another. Yeah, you should have learned that. Wicked, wretched, sinner. That's not fellowship. Now, that doesn't mean we all get in the room and we just confess our sins and say, yeah, I got this problem, but I never get any deliverance and just walk on and sin. That, that's, the, that's the opposite, right? But be careful, ladies and gentlemen. You got somebody that comes confesses sin to him. don't punch him four more times in the gut. Say, get it. You better get it now. That's not fellowship. We have partnership in Christ. I know we're we're wicked, wretched sinners, aren't we? All of us. We come together in fellowship because Christ has died for us and rose from the dead. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of sin. Right? Again, it's so, so very important that this cleanses us from all sin. Genuine believer is being sanctified because of the completed work of Christ. Now, this is so important. When it says, cleanses us from all sin, there is forgiveness at justification. There's justification. We're declared right. But there's this ongoing sense of God's cleansing work in the believer, too. And I believe that this is what this is talking about. And I think it's referenced again later on. We'll see in a second, in a little bit, in verse 9. The reality is this. The person and work of Jesus both justifies us and it also is the sanctification too. The understanding of the gospel is what cleanses us from all sin. It's not just a one-time thing. This is a progressive sanctification is what's meant by this cleansing us of all sin. This is a setting apart, a purifying of believers that happens with, because Christ died and rose from the dead. This new relationship established between believers and God, this relationship produces a progressive change in our lives. We are constantly growing. Now, I know some of you say, well, man, I just see how sinful I am. Am I really growing any? Well, part of the reason why you see your sin so much is because you've gotten closer to Christ. And the more you get closer to God, the more you see just how sinful you are. But believe it or not, God is cleansing you. You are looking a little bit more like Christ than you were 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Why? Because God is working. And the gospel changes. And it transforms. And it cleanses. And it makes us look different. But sanctification is progressive. It still happens only because of the finished work of Christ, too. And I can't stress that enough. The Spirit is the one that changes us. And does He change us immediately? No, He doesn't. It takes time. Why does it take time? Because God, in His providence, established it that way. He established it to be a work in progress. And all of us are. If our life is characterized as walking in God's light, then the resulting effect is mutual partnership with other believers who are being sanctified. One at a time, day by day. That's a pattern of our life. If the general pattern of your life is to seek and to serve God in obedience, then the resulting effects will be a common bond with other believers who are being changed. On top of this, we will be part of the work of God to set us apart from the world. Sin will be put to death in our lives Every day. By the way, the great act of walking in the light is walking in obedience to God. And the one primary command to obey is loving the brethren. Verse uh, chapter 4. I can't wait till. Oh man, I think we all should memorize 1 John for 2015. It'd be excellent. It's good stuff. We all need to love, right? And that's walking in light. When you walk in light, you sacrifice for others. I'm completely convinced this is the solution. As we get our eyes off of ourselves and onto Christ and onto God, we sacrifice ourselves for Him. We do whatever He wants us to do. We lay down our lives for Him. And that is shown and expressed through loving one another. We lay down our lives for others. So as we walk in the light, then we partner together in the same purpose and we are set apart by God. So let's look at some practical examples of this. A genuine believer is characterized as directionally becoming holy. Is God changing you? Do you look more holy today in thought and action and attitude than you did previously? A year ago? Five years ago? Ten years ago? Is God changing you? Is he setting you apart? Some of you say, man, I sure did. Yeah, I was doing okay, but I blew it last week. But is the direction of your life. Yeah, hopefully you repented. You're not trying to clean yourself up by yourself. But is the direction of your life walking with him. You look more holy. Question, who's the easiest people to talk with? Who do you find the most common ground with? If we are constantly pointing every conversation away from God and towards the world, we need to ask the question, why am I so worldly? Who's your favorite subject? Who do you like to talk about with people? And who do you like to talk with? Who are the people you just, if I could just hang all the time with these five people, who would they be? And what would be the topic of conversation? Again, if you can find people even in our church where you can hang and talk with them and talk about the world all the time, then that doesn't help you any those are not the ones to hang on and cling on to. What are our interests? If I were to ask you to write down your top five desires in life, what would they be? I want to be married. I want to have four kids. I want to have two-car garage. And I want a boat. I, now, if we were to compare these desires with other people, what do you think they would do? Here's my list, okay? Here's some of the ones I wrote down. List of my greatest desires I really want to see happen. I want to be a part of a church that passionately pursues God. I want to see re- relationships reconciled that are broken. I want the glory of God to show not only in what I say, but in what I do and think. I want to make genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. I want to love my wife like Christ loves the church. I want to love and teach my children about Jesus every day. I want to make a bunch of shepherds that are better preachers than me. I want to be a sin slayer in my own heart every day until I go to be with him. I want to be able to look back on my life at the end and say I fought the good fight. i fi- finished the course. I've kept the faith. I want to finish strong. Those are my desires. If I could get those nine, I'd be all set. That's what I want. The world doesn't think that way. And even I have to fight because that's not always what I prioritize. But by the grace of God, knowing the gospel, that's what I want to do and be. How about you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the glory of the gospel. Thank you for the message that transforms lives. Father, thank you for this book of 1 John. Both one of the most convicting, but also one of the most encouraging books in the entire Bible. Thank you, Father, for it. You know it has brought me to my knees numerous times. I'm so thankful for the gospel. Thankful for this church. And Lord God I bear I pray please make this a church that passionately pursues Christ We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus our savior Amen